another episode of our Uncovering Possibility content series funded by a Reimagining Professional Development grant through Texas Career Engagement. I'm joined by Viet Quang, composer at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional work. Yeah, so I'm a uh, composer and I've been doing that for a long time now. Uh, but recently I also started um, teaching at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas uh, as an assistant professor. So uh, these days I'm kind of balancing uh, both of those things as a career as a professional composer as well as a professor. So you must be incredibly busy having this dual role as a working composer as well as being a professor. I mean, how do you possibly stay on top of all the tasks that you need to do and get all the projects done that you need to complete for your jobs? It's uh, not necessarily like an easy thing to balance, but I'm really lucky that my uh, department at UNLV and my colleagues are very supportive and um, also just like want the best for me in every aspect of my career. So they uh, totally understand that like it's a good thing um, if I'm out there in the world doing things as a composer because it's good for the school, for their faculty to be showing like their students what like being a professional composer can be like. And also um, it's just good for the school as well in terms of recruiting and stuff kind of based off of your name and your music. Um, and so I'm lucky that my department supports that and um i i don't have like um you know a million classes that i'm teaching um my teaching load is very uh manageable so i teach a musicianship like music theory and oral skills course and then also an orchestration course and some private students so it's manageable and i'm lucky i have a ga who can kind of uh fill in when I'm traveling and um, do the oral skill stuff with my students when I'm gone. And then otherwise, it's just like a lot of planning ahead. And when I got this job, I kind of had to move some things around, um, partly because it was sort of we were still in the um, the era of like flexibility due to COVID. Um, so things, some things were moved around, but then also just like, okay, if I'm going to do this job, I need to kind of plan for that. And I also started working with um, sort of like a manager to take care of my admin stuff on the composer side. Emails take a long time to send. I figured since I'm gonna now be having like school related emails, I need to like hand off a lot of the, you know, perusal score emails, uh, orders, fulfillment of orders, all that sort of stuff to someone else. So it's a lot of just uh, careful planning, I would say. Did you have a hard time deciding when it was time to jump in and, and get some extra hands on deck? I mean, it, it sounds like you were the one stuffing the envelopes, sending the scores out, going to the post office. I mean, how, how long were you doing that? Oh, for years. Like I still have in my closet over here, my uh, binding machine, my saddle stapler. And I still have a couple like leftover binding coils and things like that. Um, all throughout grad school, I was uh, like, I had this like sort of self-run publishing company where I would print all of the scores punch all the holes, bind them. I got the envelopes that could fit 11 by 17 scores, the shipping labels. And then I had these like master sets of um, my parts that I would send through a copy machine. 11 by 17, I'd pull, handfold every single part, staple in the middle of the saddle stapler, pack them, ship them. Um, and I did that probably until like 2018 or so, my own work, just because I don't know, I wasn't, first of all, I like wasn't that much stuff. It wasn't huge volume of orders, but then also uh, I am definitely sort of a control freak when it comes to stuff related to my music. And so it also just kind of took me a while to find someone that I would like trust to do these things. I do remember this one week where I, I had this piece of diamond tie that's like an easier 
technically easier piece. And I would usually get like maybe one order a week or something. So it was manageable. It took me like two or three hours to make that set of parts and send it off. But then one week I got like five orders and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I, I going to do this? And I did it, but it took me like 10 hour, ten or 12 hours to like make all those parts. And I was at the time I was like my doctorate program and it was just a lot going on. And then I was like, okay, well maybe it's time to like think about having a distributor. Um, and so I had worked with this, um, Murphy Music to distribute my music for a while. And then eventually like when I got this job, like now Sean Murphy is sort of like managing a lot of aspects of my um, like logistical things in my composition career. So it's been like a gradual thing too. Cause I think it's also a process to find people who you know you can trust with things and who will like who know how the business works. Cause they have artist managers for like, like uh you know so like yo-yo ma obviously has a manager but yo-yo ma managed like a composer who writes a lot of wind band music in the same way i don't know because it's just like a different uh totally different animal when you compare even a composer who's like managed by someone who works to get them performances in the orchestra world whereas in the band world it's like kind of operates in a very different way because a lot of them are academic institutions as opposed to like professional organizations. So can you tell us a little, little bit about what skills do you attribute to having so much success starting at such a young age? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's like um, a sort of secret elixir that one can <laughs> take. Um, but I think it's uh, a couple things. I think one thing was just like the way that I tried to present myself to the world was that even though I was young, I still tried to come across as very professional. That kind of has multiple components too. It's like when you send emails to people, you address them nicely. And it's not just like, a, it's not like a text message exchange or something. Um, and uh, also like, I tried really hard to make my scores and my music look really good. When I was in college, I did this internship in the Atlanta Symphony Library. And I learned like where they got that like perfect shade of beige paper the perfect weight and I like bought it from that place for the longest time. It was called like Mini Mac. It was like the store in like Marietta, Georgia. <laughs> um, and then like getting the binding coils and the binding machine. And like, I remember like seeing um, Boosie and Hawk scores that like conductors that in college would carry around. They were like rental scores and they had this like green cover. It's like a green cardstock cover with a little label on it. That was the title of the piece. And I like bought green covers. <laughs> for my com and like little labels to try to make it look professional as possible you know you can like your music can look great it can you can present yourself great you can have a really amazing looking website but ultimately like you have to have music that kind of speaks to people um and i think i was just like uh fortunate that i grew up in the band world and kind of knew the rep and i knew how to play percussion and clarinet and so I think all those things helped me um, learn what I was doing early on um, in my sort of schooling as a composer. Um, and so I think my music on some level, it wasn't perfect, but it had a sort of um, user-friendly quality to it <laughs> um, that helped as well. And I'd say like a lot of things as a composer, you can go be in school, you can take classes on how to write music, you have lessons, but you learn so much just on the job. Um, and I think I had learned a lot of things just by playing in band and playing all those instruments and doing a lot of score study as well. So that when I wrote this piece, Sound and Smoke, which is 
again, it's not a perfect piece by any means uh, orchestrationally or anything, but I think people saw like a sort of spark and potential in it and it didn't catch on like, like wildfire right away, but people started to play it more and more. And it's um, funny now that like, I think more people know who I am. They're like discovering Sound of Smoke and it's like one of my more popular pieces, even though it's over 10 years old now. So you were discussing those skills sort of learned on the job through your composing process and just professionalism and making sure that your scores look a certain kind of way, making sure you have the right weight paper and whatnot. I'd love for you to talk about you know the role that social media plays in your own work and potentially ways that you mentor your own students regarding, you know, is there a certain way that they should be presenting themselves on social media? And if so, how or maybe any composers listening to this or really any academics listening to this, just words of wisdom that you could offer in regarding how to use that tool. It's a wild world out there with social media. I mean, I kind of think of social media as um, a tool to let people know what you're doing. I was talking to my students recently about like self-publishing versus uh, publishing yourself with a really big publisher or something. Uh, I think traditionally the role of a publisher was to promote your music, um, especially in the age before the internet or social media, like on the back of like a clarinet sonata, like the, um, I don't know who publishes like the, like Brahms clarinet sonata, but like on the back will be like other titles for this instrumentation or whatever. I think that's how people like found music. Like the music stores are just kind of order stuff and then people would go and produce things. But now with the internet, it's like much more easily accessible for people to find music. It's like joking, like, and I went to the Boozy and Hawks Instagram page and I was like, wow, I have more Instagram followers than Boozy and Hawks. So clearly they're not going to be doing much in the way of like social media promotion. Not that Boozy and Hawks has ever offered to publish me. They probably won't at this point. <laughs> it just said that. But social media is really good in that way. Um, where I think that social media can be kind of um, not ideal is just uh, you can kind of compare yourself to other people and like you feel like you're not doing enough and you kind of may sometimes I do this where I kind of conflate everyone on social media as like one superhuman being that is doing everything even though it's like a collection of many people and each person is doing their own little amazing things but then you start to feel like you're inadequate or you're not doing enough and so that's something i've had to like kind of learn over the years is i like you no know, it's like everyone has like their own struggles and they just sort of um, are curating their own image online because that's something we all do because we don't post every literally everything going on in our lives or at least i don't think we should <laughs> so um i kind of like use social media nowadays as sort of just like showing people highlights of what I'm happy with, what I'm excited about. And I kind of leave it at that. I don't post a lot of personal things just because um, I don't know people are like interested in that. <laughs> I, I think people like are interested in like what I have to say as a composer and my music and if I have good recordings that it's like exciting to share those. And I think people enjoy those because like I'll, I'll go on like Facebook and post after like months of not posting. And if it's something I'm really genuinely excited to share, I get like a lot of interaction with people and that's really cool. <laughs> and so I think that's the way I approach it, but I think it can be different for everyone. Um, I think some people, uh, part of their image as a composer is uh, is their personality and their um, what they're like, what they're eating for lunch and like what they're um, where they're going next just for fun. And um, I just, this is like not an instinct of mine. Like every time I do something to like post about it and like tag the location and stuff maybe i like having a mystique or something <laughs> and, and you think about like uh some composers who are very active on social media and they're very successful and then there's other composers like like miss linka didn't wasn't like posting on his instagram stories like every 
every day or something. And he was a very respected as a composer and everything. So I, I think um, there's different ways to go about it. I think having some level of social media presence is, is good, though, so that you can share what you're doing. It's like the joke. It's like, if if, if you don't post about it, just, did it actually happen? <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, it feels these days that maybe some things like can easily get lost if, if you're not like posting about them. So. So we're talking about professionalism. We're talking about social media. Do you feel, and of course, I won't ask you to speak on behalf of all composition areas, but do you include a lot of these conversations in mentoring your own students? Do you feel like that's something that takes place in the education of composers around the country? And if not, are, are there ways for students to learn about these things versus just through trial and error? Or, or what would you advise that they do? Well, it's, this is stuff that I certainly talk with with my students. I feel like that was a big reason why I was like brought on to do this job was that I had this real world experience um, that I think for a long time wasn't like as uh, present in academia. In the last, you know, couple decades, it seems like composers, if you like got a job in academia, you would kind of, that would be your job as like a professor. You'd have you'd have to sacrifice some professional opportunities and in some ways like sacrifice a lot of time that you would need to spend to build a career as a, as a often performed composer or something to be a professor and teach, you know, counterpoint and orchestration of these things. And so I think a lot of times it was just professors like, and I'm generalizing too, obviously, but I think a lot of times professors didn't have a lot of the relevant current real world experience to um, teach those things to their students. And I say current as well, because times change very fast. And like being a composer nowadays is very different than even like 10 years ago. I'm always happy to chat with my students about publishing and also even more personal things like about how one wants to present themselves to the world um, and their identity. Like we have a seminar every couple of weeks at UNLV where it's like essentially like rep class, but we're for composers. And I just did one on self-publishing and we talked about very technical things like the binding machine that you can use and the swing line style stapler and how to format the PDF so that it prints on 11 by 17 double sided. But then when you fold it, it becomes eight and a half by 11 booklets, things like that, where I had to just like learn those things like from the internet or like figure it out <laughs> until like got it right um and, and like i remember in grad school i would like help my friends make parts and like this sort of thing because i had that experience of having to like ship all these band parts all the time and so when we had like performances or readings where they had to make their own parts i would like help people do that and that was always like a fun like you know part making party whatever <laughs> i will say this story stuff is becoming more common in um, academia, but I think it involves a lot of um, like new faculty being brought in who do have entrepreneurial skills or these sort of professional um, skills to teach their students because you kind of have to uh, have the experience doing it to really know what it's like <laughs> and to give that advice. So you've already had a really incredible storied career at a young age. Uh, for composers that are listening out there, what words of advice would you offer them that want to be as successful as Via Quang? Uh, the music has to be well-written for the instruments and come off the page in a way that's like satisfying and rewarding for performers and conductors. But then I think another thing is like to be patient with yourself. Like it's always good to be ambitious and put yourself out there and try to like promote yourself and everything, but also know that it takes time to learn what you're doing as a composer and find your voice. You have to be patient with yourself and do it the right way, I guess, in terms of like pacing yourself, um, and 
not expecting everything to kind of catch on overnight. It's hard to kind of accept that, like in the age of social media where things I feel like we're moving very quickly and there's always people like doing all this amazing stuff that you're seeing that you feel like you're not going fast enough. But sometimes you'll get rejected again and again for things and then you'll get accepted or get an opportunity when actually the time was right. Uh, I look back on things where I thought like, oh, I want to do this like best summer festival. And I applied like four times on the fourth time I got it. And I think I got it at the right time when I was a better composer and I could write a piece that I was really proud of. Whereas if I got in the first time, it wouldn't have been a good piece because I just wasn't, I was so green at the time. And then there are even like things like competitions. Um, you can send all these pieces every year and then you, it's easy to get like down on yourself and think of all these like sort of boogeyman of why, like why do you didn't get something? <laughs> so it's just like, and you look back and you're like, oh, wow. No wonder I, that didn't win because it wasn't a good piece and I can write something better now. And so like this new piece of mine just won this prize from CGNA and it was like, yeah, I'm like happy it was that piece because it's like a piece that I think I'll forever be proud of for the rest of my life. Whereas like some of my earlier music, even if I'm like proud of it in a certain way, it's just not as good. So I'd rather have people like know me or recognize me for my better music. <laughs> It seems like the key is to just simply be patient and then, and then know that as long as you keep your nose down, the right things will come at the right times. Yeah. And having the baseline of your music to be playable and user-friendly, but then also like there's that and you build upon that after writing many pieces and for over years where you start to actually find your way to make the piece uh, user-friendly and playable. It's like that's like kind of what finding your own voice is all about is like finding um, your way to work within all the limitations of any sort of um, ensemble or grade level or whatever and sound like yourself. That that last answer was really applicable to a lot of artists, I think, in, in, in all disciplines. I, I guess I can only like speak as a composer because it's what I do, but I think this like applies to many facets of life, like being patient with yourself. Uh, in many ways, um, not expecting like overnight instant results because very little in life like happens that way. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us. I know that composers and artists in all disciplines will really enjoy hearing from you. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for talking with me.